Hey, this is Pastor John Ryan Cantu from Numa Church in Houston, Texas. Thank you for listening to the message today. I hope that it blesses you and all those that you share it with. God bless you. This morning, um, I, I, we, wanted, we wanted someone someone special to bring the word of God, somebody we know that uh, could really, really speak into the lives of of, of these kids, um, and I know that God has given him a word this morning to share. He's uh, he's our, our young adults leader, uh, Michael Tucker. He's going to be bringing the word this morning. Uh, so help help me welcome Mike. Amen. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Well, as always, it is an honor and a privilege to be up here this morning. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Ryan for giving me this opportunity. Um, to bring a message from the Lord. I hope that this message speaks to you the way that it spoke to me. And of course, today is a special Sunday. Uh, This is our back-to-school Sunday. Um, But I believe that this is a message for everyone, Um, young and old. um, In fact, it'll probably resonate a little bit more with probably the older crowd, but that's okay. Um, I really kind of struggled with what I was going to talk about, uh, but this is what I felt God always calling me back to. Um, I'll be honest, this is a message for the church, so if you are somebody who has not yet made that commitment um, to follow Jesus, you get a little bit of a pass today. Um, You get to sit back, relax, just enjoy the the message. Um, But this is a message for the church, and uh, I apologize, it's going to have a couple gut punches in it, but uh, I hope that those gut punches uh, elevate you and bring you up, so, and motivate you to do something different. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, if you will go ahead and turn with me to the book of Jonah chapter 4, but don't stand just yet. I'm going to have to give some context. And uh, we're going to be looking in the, really through the whole story of Jonah, but my main text is going to be Jonah chapter 4. And I may be challenging some people's theology this morning, uh, but I think Jonah is one of the most misunderstood biblical stories that we have. I think a lot of people uh, hear it so many times, and especially from a young age, that it becomes really watered down, and we don't uh, fully understand what the book of Jonah is trying to teach us. Um, For instance, when I say the story of Jonah, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The big fish in chapter 4. And so we're going to read Jonah chapter 4 together, but before we do that, I'm going to give you a little bit of a a recap on the story thus far. So I'm going to walk you through the story of Jonah, um, give you kind of like a previously on Jonah. Um, All right, so the story of Jonah. In chapter one, we meet Jonah, and the book of Jonah is very unique because it is um, a book named after a prophet, but it is not a book of prophecy. It is a book about a prophet. And, but it introduces it the same way that the other books of prophecy would introduce. It says, a message came to Jonah from the Lord, or or something along those lines. And uh, so we immediately, if we're the reader, we think, oh, this is gonna be a story of prophecy. But it's not. Uh, it's a story about Jonah, because uh, the book of Jonah is all about subverting expectations uh, to us as the reader. It is uh, almost comical in the way it's written. Um, a lot of biblical scholars would refer to it as an ancient form of satire, that it is written in a way that's t- to make you think and to subvert your expectations. So we meet Jonah, and Jonah receives a message from the Lord, and this message is to go to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which is... Um, they're a pretty rough crowd. And uh, immediately we think, oh, Jonah's going to go to this city. We're going to hear his prophetic message to the people. 
but then verse, the next verse uh, subverts that expectation and says, Jonah ran away. Jonah runs. And this is meant to be funny because we're, like, we're set up for the expectation that Jonah is a man of God. He's going to go do what God asked him to do. Nope, he runs. And not only does he run, he gets on a boat, set sail for Tarshish, which aside from being one of the funnest places in the Bible to say out loud, it is also the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh is to the east. Uh, Tarshish is to the west. And not only is it to the west, it is as far west as you can go in the ancient world. So Jonah's not just running away, he's running as far away as he possibly can. So in Jonah chapter 1, he gets on this boat, set sail for Tarshish. Uh, on this boat, there are a bunch of pagan sailors uh, that we find out all worship their own separate gods. While they're on this uh, boat, Jonah falls asleep under the deck. Um, but gets woken up by the sailors because there's this massive storm, a storm of divine proportions uh, where the sailors know that this is an act of God. Uh, And Jonah, uh, or I'm sorry, the sailors uh, cast lots. And what that means is they just did like ancient dice rolling. And they figure out that it's Jonah that has brought this storm upon them and they confront him. Um, And Jonah does something kind of strange. He tells them, all right, what you got to do is you got to throw me off the boat. You got to throw me out into the middle of the sea. Uh, there's no Coast Guard at this time, so uh, this is, as the reader, I should be assuming, oh, well, Jonah's, <laughs> Jonah's going to die <laughs> the end of the story. Um, so Jonah throw, gets thrown off the boat. Uh, the, the sailors do resist at first. They try to not do that, uh, but ultimately the storm is just too great, and so they do it. Then immediately the storm clears, and all these pagan sailors begin to praise Yahweh, the one true God. Then, in chapter 2, or kind of end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, that's where our favorite character in the whole story shows up, this big fish, and he swallows Jonah up. Again, this would be funny, because Jonah was as good as dead, but lo and behold, God doesn't give up that easily. And so, Jonah is swallowed by this giant fish. Inside the fish, he gives this really pretty prayer poem uh, that's very reverent to God, uh, thanks God for remembering him in the deep, but oddly... At no point in the uh, prayer does Jonah ever really apologize or repent for what he's done. He just kind of says, all right, because you remembered me in the deep and because I'm stuck in the belly of this fish, I'm going to go and do what you've asked me to do. Um, As if Jonah has a choice at this point. And so then we get into chapter 3. Jonah is vomited up onto the shore. Uh, The word of vomit is in scripture. And Jonah is vomited onto the shore and heads straight for Nineveh. And the Bible tells us that it takes three days to go through the city of Nineveh. But Jonah goes a day (laughs) into the city of Nineveh. He doesn't even go the entire way through. And uh, he preaches a message that in Hebrew is five words. That's it. Um, In English, it's about eight words. And what he tells the people of Nineveh is, in 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be overturned. That's his entire message. Doesn't mention God or repentance or wickedness or anything like that. Just that Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days. And then us as the reader, we go, well, that's not going to work. But lo and behold, the city repents and the king calls for mourning and fasting, even for the animals. And the end of chapter 3 finishes by telling us that God changes his mind and he does not bring destruction upon the city of Nineveh. The city is saved. And if that's the end of the story, great, that's fantastic. What a great, great end of the story. Um, the city is saved, Jonah's the hero, all is well. Uh, but there is a whole other chapter, and we're going to read it this morning. 
this is not where the story ends. Uh, go ahead and stand, and we're going to read through Jonah chapter 4. Don't worry, it's only 11 verses. It's not that long. And the word of the Lord says, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. I think we can all relate. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Amen. You can be seated. Some translations uh, put it as, shouldn't I feel compassion for such a great city? Jonah chapter 4 changes the entire meaning of the entire book of Jonah. Because all of a sudden, we the reader realize as we've been going along the story and laughing at Jonah and the things that he does, all of a sudden, we realize that this book isn't about Jonah at all. It's about me, the reader. I've titled my message this morning, The Great City. Because I believe that we also find ourselves in front of a great city with a job to do. And I want to make sure that we do a better job than Jonah when it comes to how we look and view at that city. Oh no. Made the first mistake. There we go. There we go. All right. Now, the city that we stand before uh, is quite different from Nineveh, but it shares one important similarity. Um, The city of Houston is home to about 2 million people, so a little bit more than 120,000. That's Houston proper. If you expand it out to the Houston metro area, it's home to about 7 million people. Um, It's the fourth largest city in the United States, the largest in the state of Texas, and Harris County is the third largest county in the entire United States. But like Nineveh, it has lots of people lost in spiritual darkness. So this morning what I want to do is I want to highlight three behaviors of Jonah... In, in his story that I think are, are somewhat negative behaviors. And I want to speak on how we sometimes can see those same behaviors creep into our churches. And I want to make sure that we uh, try our best to abstain from those things. So the first thing, <clears throat> excuse me, the first thing that Jonah, uh, or I'm sorry, the first behavior that I want to highlight is that Jonah runs away. It's the very first thing that Jonah does in the entire story. Jonah is a runaway. He runs away from the calling uh, of what God has asked him to do. Now, 
we all share a common goal, a common mission, that we are to go into all the world and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. If, there is, if, if you're not sure what your calling is, you can rest assured that that is at least part of it. <clears throat> and unfortunately, I believe we have a lot of runaways in the church. We have a lot of people that run away from that calling. Uh, maybe it's the new convert uh, who only became a Christian because they wanted something. They had a problem in their life. They came to church. They said, all right, I'm here to get my problem fixed. Problem gets fixed. Cool. I don't guess I, all this talk about going out into the world and all that, that's weird. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I got my problem fixed. I'm out. And they run away. Then you have the kind of opposite side of that. Somebody that's been in church for a while probably, life's going good, but all of a sudden trouble strikes, calamity, and, uh, you know, they're like, man, I, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought because I was a Christian, I didn't have to worry about this anymore. And so they run away at the first sign of trouble. Um, I think those two have been talked about enough. I'm not going to elaborate on those, there, but there's a third type of runaway that I think is much more dangerous. And this is typically an older believer, somebody that's been a uh, a follower of Christ for a long time. And they run away uh, from the city because the city is scary. Or they don't like the people in the city. So they run away from that calling. I don't like the people out there. So I'm not, you know, I'm going to run away from that. And where do they run? Why, they run in here. Into this building. Because the world out there is scary and I don't like the people out there. So we run in here. And we do a bunch of busy work in here and we think, because I'm doing all of that in here, that makes up for the work that I'm not doing out there. And so we, we and occasionally we'll stand at the door and we'll yell out and we'll go, hey, Jesus is in here. Come on in. You're invited. But we put that physical barrier between us and the world because the world's scary and I don't like it. I don't like the people out in the city. And unfortunately, church, gone are the days where the city comes running to the church when things get bad. That doesn't happen anymore. We have to go out and be the gospel to the city. We can't just expect people to come running when trouble strikes. They're going to find a community out there that's already out there, and they're going to go to them. So we cannot become a church that sits in a chair Sunday after Sunday, but does nothing to reflect God's kingdom out there Monday through Saturday, And then we have the audacity to say, look at how broken and corrupt and sinful that city out there is. You can't run off to Tarshish and then complain about how bad Nineveh is. Now, that's not to say church isn't important. It's very important. But I think we may have uh, misarranged the priorities of what church is for, what these gatherings on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights are for. And to use a sports analogy, a lot of us think that Sunday morning services are the big game. That's the big game. Everything I'm doing throughout the week is prepping for the big game on Sunday. Um, But it's not. The Sunday morning services are practice. The game is out there. The game we play is out there. And you come to church to get equipped. Church is about equipping the saints to go and do the work that God has called them to do. And so... Sometimes we put a little more emphasis on what's going on in here than what's going on out there. So we cannot become runaways like Jonah was. Second, the second thing that Jonah does or is, Jonah is prideful. Uh, Jonah carries a lot of pride with him throughout the entire story. Uh, We see examples of Jonah's pride. And I'm sorry, church, but I think God might be trying to talk to us (laughs) a little bit with how much this has come up lately. But... uh, 
Just like Jonah, we can carry a lot of pride. Now, Jonah is prideful in pretty much every chapter of the book. Uh, in the first chapter, Jonah uh, is on the boat, and of course, he's asleep. God has to wake him up with a storm. And then Jonah does something really strange, and it's, if you glaze over it, you don't realize how strange it is. But whenever they're kind of figuring out what needs to be done, when him and the sailors are, are talking, um, wouldn't it have just been easier if Jonah had said, all right, you know what, yeah, it's because I'm running away from Nineveh, let's turn this boat around, head, head to Nineveh, and if we do that, I'm sure this storm will end. More than likely, it probably would have. But Jonah does something very weird. <laughs> Jonah instead says, you got to kill me. You got to throw me over the side of the boat. Because Jonah realizes, oh, there's one place I can run away that's even further than Tarshish. And it, it's kind of morbid in a way. But Jonah says, I would rather die than go help the people of Nineveh. And so he asks. But the prideful part of Jonah is that he couldn't even do it himself. He had to get the sailors to do it. He passed the sin from himself to them. When the sailors throw him over the side of the boat, they pray to Yahweh and they say, please don't let the blood of this man's life be on our hands. Jonah couldn't even bring himself to do it himself. Then when Jonah's in the fish, he prays this really nice prayer of thanksgiving and stuff, but at no point does he admit fault or repent um, or anything like that. He, he just thanks God for remembering him and says, because you remembered me, I'll go and do what you've asked. You could say that that's repenting, but it's a stretch. Then Jonah gets to Nineveh and he preaches a really half-hearted sermon uh, doesn't even go through the entire city. He checks the boxes. He says, all right, this is what God asked me to do. Check, check. All right, I'm out. And then we get to chapter four and we find the one thing in the story that Jonah actually cares about other than himself and it's a silly little plant. It's a plant. And, but Jonah cares about it more than anything else that he's come in contact with in the rest of the story. And unfortunately in the church, we can sometimes be like Jonah and we can often think about ourselves above anything else. We come to church, we get into my parking spot, because now we have parking spots, and, uh, and then I get, you know, I go into my seat. If, if worship's really good, it's because they played my songs. If uh, the pastor preached from my favorite book, it becomes about me, me, me. And we ask, how can this church cater to me? And what we've done is we've created our own little plants and we sit in the corner and God says, do you not see what I'm trying to do right there? You're too busy looking at your plant and worrying about it to see what I'm actually doing. How can the church cater to me? But we should ask, how can I, what can I bring to the table? We've got to let go of our pride. Then the third thing, <clears throat> excuse me, then the third thing The third thing that Jonah does is Jonah gets angry. Jonah gets real angry. In Jonah chapter 4, Jonah reveals his true heart. This is where Jonah, he, he puts on the gloves and he says, all right, we're going to do this. And he gets angry at God. And he gets angry that God would care about such awful people. That's really the, the crux of what Jonah's angry about. He's mad because God showed mercy on people that Jonah didn't think mercy belonged to. And he actually even uses God's own description of himself that we find in Exodus chapter 34, uh, verses 6 and 7, if you want to write that down for later. It's actually the most uh, 
quoted passage of scripture by other biblical authors. Um, more times in the Bible, or it's the, it's the verse that you'll find more often in the rest of the Bible than any other. And it's God's description of himself when Moses is on Mount Sinai. The one that says that God is a God of compassion and mercy, uh, slow to get angry and abounding in love. And Jonah takes that and he throws it in God's face. He says, I knew you were like this. I knew you were an angry, or I knew you were not an angry God. I knew you were a God that had mercy on people. And according to God, Jonah's anger is misplaced. But if I'm, the human part of me says, I kind of get it a little bit. If you know about the Assyrians at that time, they were brutal, violent people. They were, they were conquering cities. They were um, just killing anybody that they could. They were not good people. But, Jonah, but to, according to God, Jonah has no right to be angry. He asks Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? And we can often be like Jonah, angry that God would care for them. God has called us to reach this great city, yet we want to play the spiritual gatekeeper and decide who's allowed in and who's not. When the people in the city don't look like, act like, speak like, or think like we do, we can begin to act as though we weren't once one of them. And unfortunately, there's just a lot of angry Christians out there. We're angry that sinners sin. And I see it all the time. I get on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and I, I see posts that are just constantly bashing you know, a specific person or a specific type of person or a group of people. And I see Christians who are more concerned with crusades against certain types of sin than they are about the one thing that can rescue them from that sin. We're just angry. And I know that the perception is that we're angry because I have a lot of friends that are not Christians. And you know what they think of Christian? They think we're a bunch of angry people in our buildings. And unfortunately, that's just, we, we can be angry. Part of it's true. And so it's crucial that we remember this. The only thing that makes us any different to the people outside of those doors is something that I have nothing to do with. It was a gift that I've accepted and they have not. That's it. That's the only difference. There is nothing that I, in my own power, do that makes me any better than anybody else. Jonah gets angry because he's prideful. He thinks he's better than the Ninevites. And God reminds him, you're not. All right. Now... You may be saying, but Michael, it worked. The city of Nineveh was saved. So does any of this really matter? God, God won. <laughs> and I would say, yeah, that's right. You're right. Against all of Jonah's efforts to the contrary, God prevailed. In spite of Jonah running away, God was able to save a ship full of pagan sailors. In spite of Jonah trying to get himself killed, God rescues him from the deep, and gives him a second chance to do the right thing. In spite of Jonah only making it one-third of, of the way through the city, God spreads his message throughout the whole city, piercing the hearts of its people. In spite of Jonah giving a half-hearted sermon, the king of Nineveh hears, God, uh, hears what God is saying to him and calls on his people to mourn and to fast, even the animals. 
In spite of everything Jonah does along the way, God rescues that great city. And I believe God is going to rescue our great city. But the question becomes, will God save this this great city through us or in spite of us? That's the question. Because Jonah is the ultimate reminder that you can do the right thing, but do it with the completely wrong heart. If I can get somebody on the keys. I'm going to go ahead and start. Um, Yeah, Jonah is the ultimate reminder that you can do the right thing and do it with the wrong heart. So what was Jonah missing? What's the missing ingredient here? When we do go out into that great city, what do we do? And I'm going to jump us uh, to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 35. It says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Jonah lacked compassion, and he lacked grace. He didn't see the Ninevites the way God saw them. And I think at times, the church also can lack that grace and compassion to see the world through the lens that Jesus sees it through. When Jesus looks at the crowds, he isn't filled with anger at all the things that they've done. He's filled with compassion and grace at what they might become. Can we do the same in our homes? at our jobs, in our schools. No matter where we go while we're in that great city, can we be full of grace and compassion as Christ is? Every single person you've ever met and ever will meet was made in the image of God. Every single person. There's a great... uh, line in a a fairly new song Um, it's called Agenda by Benjamin William Hastings it's a really pretty song Uh, but there's a particular line in there that really resonates with me uh, and in it he says sometimes we can get so caught up in aspects of truth that we choose the dress over the bride we care more about what the world looks like than we do about who they are that they are an image of God that they are somebody who has just as much right to grace and forgiveness as we do. We can forget that. And so when we go out into the city and we interact with the people out there, where do we point them? Do we point them to just good morals, to theological arguments, to a program, maybe to an idol that looks an awful lot like me? Or do we point them to the one thing that they desperately need? A good shepherd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. There's a a really good quote by um, Mike Iaconelli, who, if you're not familiar, he's kind of a pioneer for youth ministry in the 90s, early 2000s. He wrote a lot of books. And he puts it this way. Nothing in the church makes people in the church more angry than grace. It's ironic. We stumble into a party we weren't invited to, and find the uninvited standing at the door making sure no other uninviteds get in. 
Then a strange phenomenon occurs. As soon as we are included in the party because of Jesus' irresponsible love, we decide to make grace more responsible. When we interact with the world out there, are are we doing it to meet a quota? Are we trying to get, sorry kids, butts in seats? Are we trying to get, what are we trying to do? Or are we trying to look at the world with compassion that God looks at? Are we so concerned with our little plant that we can't see what God, the work that God is trying to do out in the city? This is a a message about, you know, mission-mindedness, going out into the world and, and being the gospel. But it's also about grace, because you can't do that without grace. You can't do it without forgiveness. You can be like Jonah, and you can do what God's asked you to do, but be miserable the whole time, because your heart's not in the right place, because you don't, because you really don't care. Or, can do it with love and compassion and grace in your heart and do it to reach the people who need to know Jesus desperately. Our church is located in East Downtown, Houston, Texas, Second Ward. That's the great city right outside our doors. And while I know many of us in the congregation don't necessarily live in this neighborhood, if we call Numa Church home, then we have a responsibility to this community. So, in preparation for this message, I asked um, good friends David and Rachel Aylor, um, who do our outreach ministry, I asked them uh, to provide me with some statistics regarding this area of Houston. But when they sent me everything, I realized I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of statistics that you may or may not actually care about. Uh, Instead, I'm going to just provide you with some of the needs of the people in our own backyard. Um, This is all stuff that came from our one-day Houston event. Number one was family reunification. Custody battles, families broken by divorce, even a mother who's fighting for her daughter to come to the U.S. so they can be together. Probably going through all sorts of legal mumbo-jumbo and and, uh, and paying who knows how much just to be with her daughter. Family, uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, family infighting. Families who are on the verge of breaking apart. Um, There was prayer for families to be brought to Christ, family members, relational wounds to be healed, um, families on the verge of divorce. Lots of people fighting depression, anxiety, negative thinking, grief over lost loved ones, and addiction. People who have vices that are just so strong in their lives. Church, these are the things happening just beyond the city gates. This is what's happening right outside those doors, like literally right outside those doors. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Secondly, we're at kind of a nice advantage because so many of us do live in other pockets of Houston. So not only can we do this here, but we can do it all over our great city. We can spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to so many other places. And I don't, when I say spread the gospel, I don't just mean preach the gospel. I mean live it. Let the gospel that you know permeate through every fiber of your being. In everything you say, in everything you do, in everything you think, in everything you believe. 
embody the gospel. See people as Jesus sees them, with compassion and grace. Because when you do this, you don't have to force it. You don't have to come up with your talking points. You don't have to come up with your theological arguments. You don't have to do any of that. You you are that representation of Jesus where there is needed representation of Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. Be that conduit for the Holy Spirit. Because remember, you don't save people. God saves people. And you can either resist that or you can be the tool through which God uses to do that. And when when that happens, people will see you and they will take notice. And more importantly, they won't just see you, they'll see Jesus. They'll see that. Now the hard part is being like Jesus. The The hard part is embodying the gospel. But if you can get that down, then evangelism becomes easy. Because all of a sudden you're at work or school or wherever and people come up to you and they're like, man, I know you got stuff going on at home. How, do you, how are you so joyful all the time? Or they'll see you and they'll go, man, you seem to never get angry. That person was yelling in your face and you were fine. You don't seem to ever get angry. Or, man, you're so quick to forgive people. Like, don't, don't you realize what that person did to you? when we begin to embody the gospel, then we see these opportunities sprout up where we can say, oh man, yeah, let me tell you, I believe in a God that tells me that tomorrow is going to be better than today, so why not be joyful? You know, I believe in a God that's slow to get angry, so I'm slow to get angry. I believe in a God who forgives against all circumstances. So I forgive against all circumstances. It's not easy, but I do it because I believe. And all of a sudden now, you don't need your talking points because now you've got the, the, the conversation because it's part of you. a lot of mistakes along the way. But God never really gives up on it. And we don't know the, the fate of Jonah. The, the, the chapter ends pretty abruptly because like I said, it's about us, not about Jonah specifically. But I'd like to think that if we are hearing this story, Jonah had a breakthrough at some point. And he told people about this. Jonah is the story of grace. God's grace for everyone. Syrians weren't Israelites. They were they were, they were, they were the enemies to the Israelites. What do you do when God loves your enemy? What's your answer? We have to be like God. We have to be like Christ. 
The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So let's... My only hope for this message is that it creates more workers. That's That's my only hope for this message. I'm going to go ahead and have everybody stand. We're going to respond. Um, And we're going to do something special today. We're going to, here in a moment, we're going to take some time to pray for our students and our teachers. They're going back to school. But uh, before we do that, I do want to make an opportunity for those that are in here that you're not part of the church. You're not, you have not made that commitment to follow Christ. Maybe you don't feel like Jonah because you've never had the opportunity to feel like Jonah. You feel more like the, the Ninevites, the city. And you're suddenly hearing about, you know, you maybe you've had a lot of Jonas in your life that have told you about a wrathful God and a God who's going to bring destruction to your life. But maybe now you're hearing for the first time about a God of compassion and grace and that's slow to be angry and will be patient with you. I want to give you an opportunity, if you so choose, to follow Christ and to follow that compassionate God in the form of Christ. Jesus came and he died for you and he rose from the grave, not because he had to, but because he loves you. And, he, and grace, Jesus is the extension of that story of grace and it comes to fruition through him. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus can be saved. So I want to give you a chance to call on that name. And I'm not going to do anything fancy like bow your head, close your eyes. I just want you to be bold that's you, this morning I want you to raise your hand and I want to pray for you. If that's you. In boldness. Thanks for listening. If you'd like some more information on Numa Church, visit us on our website at mynumachurch.org. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share it with your friends on social media and tag us at My Numa Church. Thanks again and God bless.